Father, let us grow stronger in this word that we will receive today. Let it be something, Father, that will fill that, that question with an answer, that, that need with a provision, that concern or worry, Father, with hope and confidence. Whatever may be on the minds and hearts of those you've gathered here this morning, I pray, Lord, that though I prepared without the knowledge of their needs, I prepared, Father, with the Holy Spirit, and so I pray that what He gave me will be what they need, and that in that way You would get the glory. And I pray, Father, that for myself as well, that I would do according to Your will this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Luke, again, as we end the first chapter and go into the second chapter, is our focus. Luke, as you know, the Gospel writer, the doctor, I've made a point as I've been studying through Luke and as I will continue to study to look for opportunities to bring out a new aspect or a different aspect of Christ's character and of His ministry with each week because if you can't do that teaching through a gospel, you have no business standing up here. And so the goal in each week will be to highlight some other aspect of Christ in His ministry even as we learn the text as we study each week. And today will be no different. We will focus on yet another aspect of Christ and His ministry on earth. Elizabeth, as you remember, at the end of last week had given birth finally to the promised son, to John the Baptist. And we had looked at the naming of that child on the eighth day, on the day of circumcision. All the family and friends were gathered around for that event, the circumcision event. And when the time came to name the child, she proposed the name John, which confused the audience for good reason. They had no reason to know why that name would be the appropriate name it didn't come out of the family. And they tested whether it was truly going to be his name by going to the father. And the father as well confirmed that the name should be John. And that was a miraculous thing because Zacharias, as we learned last week, probably was deaf as well as mute based on the word there used in the Greek. And so it's likely that he never understood what she had named him and perhaps they had never even confirmed what the name should be. And then suddenly as he names that child John, we, we're going to study as we go into this, to the text today, that in that moment he is set free from the discipline that he had been uh, suffering through, I guess, for the last nine months. The discipline that God had put upon him for his disbelief, for his questioning of God's word when he was in the temple with the angel. So as now he, becomes a, uh, uh, he gains his ability again, rather, to speak, his very first words are going to be recorded here in the text we read today. And it's going to be interesting to notice that the very first thing he talks about is not his son, but rather Mary's son. Let's look at Luke 1.63, picking up a little bit back from where we stopped last week. And he asked for a tablet. This is Zacharias. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. So as we said last week, God purposed to silence Zacharias in the temple because it was discipline. It was God's response to the way Zacharias doubted the word of the angel. Now, why was God so concerned about Zacharias' doubting in the temple? In the simplest terms, it came down to robbing God of His glory. Robbing God in that moment of the rightful praise and glory He had coming to Him. He had deservedly coming to Him based on what He had revealed to Zacharias. 
And it went even a step further because in the thing that Zechariah said, he not only removed the opportunity for God to get praise and glory, but he took even worse a, a step of asking God for proof, of putting God to the test, something God says in his word he will not tolerate. He will not be tested for whether he is true or not. God's discipline was really an interesting thing because it not only addressed the problem, in other words, it not only brought discipline in some form, but it did it in a very particular way. God disciplined Zacharias in a way that dealt with his mistake. It disciplined him for his mistake, but at the same time, it also accomplished two other good purposes. And I want us to take a moment to study how God's discipline can be used to do good even beyond what it does for the individual involved. First, God's true to his character here. He's true in the moment back in the temple. He chastens the disobedient disbelief of Zacharias by silencing him. Now remember, Zacharias became a public spectacle. He left the temple with the inability to speak, and I would argue probably with the inability to hear. And for those nine months, he would have walked around in this state, a constant daily state of chastisement, of rebuke a public spectacle now everywhere he went for nine months. And I have to believe in his mind, in Zacharias' mind, the whole time in those nine months, anytime he wanted to speak, anytime he got upset because he couldn't speak, and let me tell you, I have a little bit of personal experience here. There's <clears throat> One of the things I'm concerned about this morning is my voice is a weak spot for me. I tend to lose my voice. And when I lose my voice, I get very grumpy. I get very upset. I hate it. And I hate it mainly for the inconvenience of it. But it's just, you can't stop it. I mean, you can't make it come back. I can't get it back any sooner, it seems, than natural course of time provides for. So, in just a week of not having my voice, I'm just miserable. And I make everyone around me miserable. But Zacharias, over nine months, had this. And remember, he didn't know his voice was coming back. There was no promise given that he'd get it back. So he must be wondering, is this how I live my life? And he had to be regretting his words the whole time, the words he spoke in the temple. Well, you know, that's effective discipline. As a parent, take note of that just for a moment. Effective discipline is not merely punishing somebody. Effective discipline gets the person being punished to consider the actions that led to the punishment. And in the moment, in, in considering the actions, what would follow from good punishment is repentance, is regret. The thought that, I wish I could go back and do it again differently. And, more importantly, if I get a second chance, I'm not going to make the mistake again. That's effective punishment. That's effective discipline. Not merely making somebody miserable, but making them repent so that they will not repeat the mistake. Remember Paul's words in Romans, Romans 2.4? He says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Now, if you hear that phrase, the kindness of God leads to repentance, and you assume it means being nice to someone makes them repent, then you've got that wrong. Then you've missed the entire point of what Paul's saying. He's saying it in exactly the opposite way. When God does things to you in a negative way that causes you to be repentant, that's kindness. When someone punishes you to the point where you are repentant and do not want to repeat the same mistake, that is kindness. And that is what Paul is saying we should not take lightly. The kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Well, what proof do we have that Zacharias repented? I mean, I've made a statement to you that he did. How do I know that? How would we know that Zacharias actually got the message of this chastisement? Well, maybe the simplest answer is what he named the baby. 
He named the baby, remember, before he had his voice back. He didn't know he was going to earn anything by doing it. He was doing something while still under chastisement that proved he believed what the angel told him. Because remember, the name came from the angel. The angel in the temple said, you're going to have a child and you're going to have it under these circumstances. But then he added, you're going to name him John. Well, he doubted the whole story in the temple. But now, when the time came to name the child, no doubt, this child will be named John. And that's the effect of true discipline. Alright, so that proves that God, in the way he disciplined Zacharias, actually gained the greater good of changing the man for the better. And that's what all discipline should, should do. But there's another aspect of this that we don't want to forget. When Zacharias erred in the temple, God saw less glory granted him in that moment as a basis of what Zacharias did. Because remember, what would have happened if Zacharias had believed God in the temple? In the moment when God had spoken through the angel, Zacharias believed, and then Zacharias would have praised God in that moment, given God glory in that moment. But when that happened, when he would have been doing that in the temple, he would have been completely alone. There was no one around Zacharias in the moment to share in giving God praise and glory. Now, granted, he would have left the temple, he would have had a testimony, he would have spoken about what he had heard, and that probably would have produced some degree of praise and worship from those who heard the word from Zacharias. And when Elizabeth was later seen to be pregnant, that would have confirmed the word. All of this would have resulted in God receiving glory. As it was, God received some measure of glory even despite the fact that he disobeyed, but it was reduced in some measurable way. But now that he has responded in faith in the moment of the circumcision, in the moment of the naming of the child, he is surrounded by family, he is surrounded by friends, he has been made a spectacle for nine months because of his seemingly miraculous loss of his voice and perhaps of his hearing as well. And since he didn't praise God when he had the opportunity, his silence now became an opportunity for God's glory and praise to be magnified even greater than it would have been in the first place. Because now, as the child is being named, not only is the child seen for what it is, but now the healing that comes upon Zacharias gains God even more glory. So, in the end, as God purposed to discipline Zacharias, he not only restored the glory he had rightful ownership of, right to expect, but he magnified it. He did things in such a way that the discipline actually resulted in greater glory for God in the end by seeing even more miraculous things take place to God's credit than it would have been if Zacharias praised him in the temple. Now, that doesn't mean his disobedience in the temple was a good thing. It means only that God can turn all things to good for his glory and for the good of his people despite the error. And so, God is glorified in much greater ways, and His purpose in bringing John about was even enhanced by the fact that Zacharias disobeyed. How did he actually enhance bringing John into the world through Zacharias' error? Well, look at what happens next. The people say, what will become of this child? They are more mystified now because of the naming experience than they might have been if it had simply gone as a normal birth and then John had been born. God actually took the error that Zacharias committed in the temple, used it to give himself greater glory in what he did with Zacharias, used it to correct Zacharias himself, and now actually used it so that John the Baptist would forever have this aura about him that preceded his own ministry. God taking one mistake out of one man turning it in such a way that the man is corrected and he is greater in his glory and his plan is, is improved, if you will, or increased in its power and capability as well. God turning all things to good. 
Luke 167 picks up next, and here's what Zacharias says as he first opens his mouth. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all days. So just like Elizabeth and just like Mary, Zacharias' first words as he opens his mouth come from the Holy Spirit. Having been filled by the Holy Spirit, he begins to prophesy, we're told. There are some differences. I don't need to go into much detail, but... Zacharias' speech does differ from Mary and Elizabeth's in one primary way. The women give praise, just as he does, does here to God, but he gives prophecy, which the women largely don't. There's not significant prophecy in their speech. So it seems, at least from the standpoint of timing, that though the women were supposed to praise God and speak of his work in the moment, it was left to Zacharias to really comment on the meaning of John the Baptist's birth, more so than even the women. It's interesting, in fact, that he begins to talk first, not about John, but about Jesus. And that might seem strange from a worldly perspective. In other words, you might imagine that a husband or a father who's just received his first son, his only son probably, would begin, after having been silenced for nine months, to start talking about somebody else's baby. Why would he do that? I mean, we understand the significance, but why would he do that? Well, we know he's under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's been already given to us. And it really makes perfect sense from a spiritual perspective, that he would begin with Christ. And not just because Christ is a superior person, we know that as well, but because of the relationship between John the Baptist and Christ. Without Christ, John the Baptist has no reason to exist. In fact, I don't think it's a stretch to say that if Christ himself were not about to arrive, Zacharias and Elizabeth would not have received a child. He's not not being brought into the world for his own sake or for the sake of the parents. He's being brought into the world to be a forerunner to Christ. So if the forerunner is about to be born or is born, his purpose, though, is still in connection to the one he foreruns, to the one he precedes. So it only makes sense that the first thing that Zacharias would do is establish the importance of John the Baptist by establishing who he is to come for, Christ. So naturally, he begins with the true purpose for his son's birth, Christ's coming arrival. He calls Christ the horn of salvation. This is actually out of Psalms 18, and that same psalm, Christ is also called a rock, my shield, my refuge, my stronghold. In fact, Psalm 18 is the popular words for many praise songs. And he he also declares that God is going to bring the Messiah to fulfill a holy covenant, one that was given specifically to Abraham. Now, students in this class, in this gathering, you know, this should be real easy to understand. We studied it at length, although it was a while ago. Remember in Genesis 22:16. God says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is right after Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. Paul goes on to explain in Galatians the real meaning of of that last verse, 22:18, Paul says, "Now the promise was spoke, were, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to 
his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed. That is Christ. So Paul says in Galatians 3.16, that what was actually spoken to Abraham back in Genesis 22, was a prophecy that through Abraham the, the Messiah would come, the seed. Not seeds, not people, but one, a seed, Christ. So when Zechariah says here that God has remembered His holy covenant with Abraham, he's acknowledging the very same thing. He's saying God has remembered the promise He gave to Abraham so long ago to bring a seed. And here He is today, Christ, about to occur, about to appear. Zechariah is repeating that same prophecy here. Then he turns to his own son in verses 76 and onward. Let's go there now. In Luke 1.76 he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit and he lived in the deserts till the day of his public appearance to Israel. And so, Zacharias gives a prophetic pronouncement about his own son, about John. John was to be the prophet of the Most High. He was to be the prophet of Christ. The last prophet prior to Christ, after whom there will be no more prophets. Because as Hebrews tells us, though God spoke through the prophets in the old days, He now speaks through His Son. There is no new revelation available or necessary, because His Son will provide a culmination of that, of that revelation. That all that spoke before Christ merely spoke of Him in one way or another. And now that He has arrived, there is no need for further revelation from any other source. We have heard from the, the best. Then we're told He's to prepare a way. John the Baptist prepared a way for Christ. How did He do that? I mean, what is it that Christ needed? Did He not know how to get from Bethlehem back to Nazareth? Was He unsure exactly why He came to earth and He needed someone to help point the way? Well, what is it we mean when we say John the Baptist had to prepare something for Christ? That almost seems backward, isn't it? Doesn't Christ come to prepare for us a way by which we may be saved? What is John doing for Christ? Well, there's actually at least a couple of ways in which he prepared a way. First, he prepared a physical type of preparation, an earthly type of preparation. As the angel announced to Zacharias, remember back in, one, in Luke 1.17, the angel says, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of righteousness so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I think we covered this a little bit back then, but I want to go a little deeper in, in today's teaching. John is clearing a path, but he's doing it in very real, practical terms. I've got to take you back in history a little bit. I have to set the context of the time in order for you to appreciate why it was so necessary that God bring someone like John the Baptist. When the Lord began His ministry in roughly A.D. 30, He found Himself in a world that was largely dead to the knowledge of the true living God. Centuries earlier, the world knew through the Scriptures, primarily through the prophets, through God Himself walking with men in the earliest days, a knowledge of God exists, though it didn't necessarily require everyone to believe in it. Remember Cain, he walked with God, he wasn't a believer. So mere proximity to God didn't ensure faith, but the fact is at least he was known for who he was. As the world rebelled, obviously at the Tower of Babel and beyond, knowledge of the true living God faded. 
it, it, until he began to bring it back to bear through the prophets in the nation of Israel. But I want you to get a picture of what it was like in Rome. In Rome, the culture was pagan. They were the world power. They dominated the known world and they had no interest in the things of God, no knowledge of it for the most part. They were a pagan culture. What preceded them was another pagan world power, Greece. And what preceded them was another pagan world power, the Medo-Persians. And what preceded them was another. And you, you had eons, if, if you like, of time passing on the earth with major world powers dominating the landscape, none of them having an appreciation for the true living God. If you think the world we live in today is absent a knowledge of the true living God, it's nothing like it was then. Because today we have the gospel and it has at least reached areas of the world to some degree. In the day that Christ came, he could have said, I am the God of the, I am the son of the God of Israel. I am the one prophesied through the prophets. I am the Messiah. And the average person would not have even understood what those words mean. He had no one even prepared to listen because there was no one even ready to understand. Even within Palestine, even within the time and the place of the Jewish nation when Christ arrived, people had long been ruled by sects of self-righteous men. We call them Pharisees. What they had done was taken what the law provided for and turned it into its own religion. You really can't state this too strongly. The pharisaical view of the Old Testament was so completely corrupt that it had taken what God had given and turned it on its head so far that it was no longer recognizable. The, there's a truth in, in saying that the nation of Israel practiced a false faith even as they called it their law. They didn't know who they were looking for. They had long since been convinced by these same men that their Messiah was a political figure who would come in and destroy the Roman occupation. Someone like Christ wouldn't have fit the picture at all for them. And they often defined righteousness in such hypocritical ways, ways that left them in charge and kept them on the top of the political heap in their own culture, that when Christ came in preaching His message, it, it seemed completely opposite to what they had been prepared to hear. In all ways, true faith had largely been crushed. There was a remnant, yes, but beyond that, true understanding in God's purposes was completely gone. I mean, think about it. How hard would it have been for someone like Christ to come in and make the message that He intended to make if there wasn't even an audience that understood the conversation? And so God wanted His Son to be met by at least a group of people who could understand. And more than that, they were watchful. They actually were looking for Christ, the right one, the one who would fit their expectations. And so He sends before them a man who would explain to them their own sinfulness, who would explain to them, rather than de declaring that they were righteous by what they did, he was declaring how unrighteous they were by what they did. He wanted to explain to them their need for salvation, coming from God rather than from their own works, rather than from trying to do the law. Verse 77, in fact, we just read, says that specifically. Verse 77 says he comes to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Essentially, John is going to take what little remnant must have remained in the nation of Israel in his day and build it up just enough in anticipation of the coming Christ so that when Christ came on the scene in his public ministry, he had a ready-made audience who was going to receive him that knew of him and what he would look like and what he came to do. And from that core group, he could begin to build. You know, it's worth noting how much our world looks like this today, by the way. Yeah, we have the gospel message out there. But I want you to understand, we look an awful lot like the day that John came into the world for Christ. Our world is dominated by a pagan culture. In fact, I think it's sad that 
in many ways, Christianity in some circles has become another form of pagan idolatry. In the same way that the Jews in their day had turned the law into something completely unholy, Christianity, the title, the name, has been associated with many things that are anything but Christian, anything but biblical. A true knowledge of God and of His Word, particularly of His Word, I would argue, is rapidly fading. Now, it may not seem like a convincing argument to those in here because of the way we live our life and of how we study. But if you walk outside this building, I I will assure you that even in conversations with people who call themselves Christian, if you go very deep at all into a discussion of the Word of God, you leave them fast. They quickly fall aside because they don't, have, they don't even read the Bible much, less study it. That, that is not a sign of self-righteousness. It's not that our knowledge of the Word is what is saving us per se, but it is a response to our faith that we know more about the Lord who saved us and what He would have us do in our life. And it's the way we, by which we grow in that faith. The world we live in now has very little, if any, regard for the Word of God even if they are Christian. And I would argue that many people within the Christian faith are actually modern-day Pharisees in one regard or another. They largely view their Christianity in terms of rules. And they prefer certain rules over other sects or other, other groups, but as long as they keep their rules, they feel comfortable. Meanwhile, largely, and I think this is not a stereotype that I can't, that's unreasonable, largely people don't believe in sin, I mean, in the truest sense of the word. They don't believe even in absolute moral laws in many places anymore. Morals are relative. People don't recognize their need for a Savior as a result. People aren't looking for internal change as a means of righteousness, but external things, that it's man-made rules. And so, I would argue that just as in the day Christ came the first time, there would be need for one to prepare his way, I would argue that the signs of the times are clear for us as well. I think you could make a very sensible argument out of Scripture that we are back at a point where Christ will need a a person to come in the form of Elijah, as they're given in Malachi, to prepare a way for His second coming. Because yet again, the world is filled with people who are not ready for that second coming, no more than they were ready for His first. And just as we studied in Malachi chapter 3, God says He will send Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord to prepare a people for His second coming. Why does He have to do it again? Because people are people. Because the same processes that brought people down to the point they were so low before His first coming we needed John the Baptist are still at work in the hearts and minds of men so that we need someone to come again and prepare the world for His second coming. Though a remnant exists, some number of people who are true believers exist, the world at large does not. 2.1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Well, Luke's second chapter opens with the historical context of Christ's birth, and and we want to take a moment to understand the historical context. It's really remarkable how many things God had to line up for for the time of His Son's birth to get just what He wanted. So a little political history is in order. The region of Palestine, what we would call larger Palestine, was a province of Rome in the time of Christ's birth. Now, Rome, as you probably know, was the empire dominating the world in that day. 
a province of Rome was considered a holding of Rome. They were, they were not exactly Rome itself, not part of the empire per se, but they were a territory under Roman rule. And most importantly, as a territory, they were obligated to pay taxes to the Caesar, to the Roman Empire. But they were denied full citizenship, and they were denied the full protection of the law. A good example in comparison would be the American colonies to Brit Britain. The American colonies paid tax back to Britain, but they were not considered full partners in the British Empire. They didn't have full representation. They did not have the full rights of a citizen of, of England. But they still had to pay taxes. Now, there was a limited amount of autonomy granted to the territories, particularly to the Jews, but they still fell under a Roman governor. Now, the area of Palestine was essentially split into three areas. You had Syria to the north with its own governor. You had Judea, where you would call modern-day Israel, with a governor. And then you had Nebataea in the south, which began to get into a little bit of Egypt in the southern Sinai. Each of these had its own governor. The emperor of the entire Roman Empire was a Caesar. We called him Caesar uh, as a title, and then he'd have a name. So Caesar Augustus was the Caesar in the time when Christ was born, or in the time of this census. Now, he issues an empire-wide census. Now, this is not unusual, but what was unusual was, according to historians, this is the first time it ever involved the provinces. This is the first time that the Caesar ever said, I want to know how many people live in the Roman Empire and how many live in all the associated territories. Now, censuses were done, really, for one reason and one reason only. Caesar made his money by taxing the provinces and taxing the divisions of the, of the empire. Think of it like the federal government taxing the states in some regard. That's how Caesar got his money. Now, he personally, he couldn't care less how the governors in those areas got the money that they owed him. So it was like a giant organized crime syndicate where the, the Caesar would say, I levy a tax on this province of X amount. Governor, you either get it or your head comes off. Now, the governor then would turn to hiring tax collectors and others to help him find the money that he owes Caesar. Now, anything more that he collected beyond what he owed Caesar, that was his. So you can see instantly the motives for being a tax collector, certainly for the governor himself, were not good motives. They were going to take as much money as they could from these people and use what they gained in excess of the tax for themselves. And so Augustus's census was designed to set new tax limits new tax rates according to the number of subjects in each territory. So getting an accurate headcount was important. That also explains why you went back to the home of your ancestry. Because you, you can easily leave one territory and go to another one to avoid being counted. And then when the count happened in the next territory, come back to the first. In other words, we could shuffle people around like a shell game if we were interested in trying to circumvent the tax as a governor. So everyone is supposed to go to the register in the place of their natural family history. Not necessarily where they were born, but where their family's home history was established and stay there for the time of the count. Now Luke ties this event to the rule of a governor in Syria called Cyrenius. Now he probably did this because we know so much about Cyrenius. Cyrenius ruled for an extremely short period of time. He ruled from 3 B.C. until 2 B.C. Because he ruled for such a short period of time, it gives us a very precise timeline for the birth of Christ. But Luke's record does present a dilemma here. And here's the dilemma. He doesn't mention it, but the governor of Judea during this time is a man called Herod the Great. Matthew tells us that 
in his gospel. So in Judea, we have Herod the Great. In Syria to the north, we have Cyrenius. Now, history tells us with, with good accuracy that Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. But if Herod the Great was alive during the time when Christ was born, as Matthew tells us, well, that would mean that Christ would have been born in no earlier than 4 B.C., or no later, rather, than 4 B.C. He had to be born while Herod the Great was still alive, and Herod died in 4 B.C. So Christ was probably born roughly in 5 B.C. But the census that took place right before his birth occurred during the time when Cyrenius, it said, was governor, and he was governor from 3 until 2 B.C., so how is it that Jesus can be born while Cyrenius was governor and while Herod the Great was governor of Judea and yet Herod died before Cyrenius ever became governor? That's a dilemma that men who have studied the scripture have come to. Well, the answer actually comes out of the language in the text as often is the case. The language in the Greek gives us a little different view than it does perhaps in its translation in English. In verse 2 of chapter 2, we're told that the first census... This, is, this was the first census while Cyrenius was governor. The word for first there in the Greek, protos, it actually has several meanings. That's not unusual. Most words have several meanings. It can mean first, but it can also mean prior or former. In other words, you could read that second verse like this, that this, was the census, that this census was taken prior to Cyrus becoming governor, which then would make perfect sense with the dates we understand. So it's probably more the case that what, what uh, Luke is doing is setting a date in time for when Christ is born by tying it to the beginning of Cyrus's time in office, saying this census was the first census taken prior to Cyrenius becoming governor. And that would localize that very, very precisely. In the end, though, all the evidence points to Christ's birth coming around 5 B.C. You know, that's interesting. People assume that the division between B.C. and A.D. is timed to the point of Christ's birth. It is in theological terms, but in a precise t terms, it's actually more likely 5 B.C. for Christ's birth. Shortly after Jesus' birth, we're told, the family sets out from Nazareth for Bethlehem because of this census. This is another 70-mile trek. It's really comparable to the one Mary took when she went to go visit Elizabeth about six months earlier. So in these last six months, Mary's taken this trip twice. Quite a woman. Now, Joseph, we're told, is engaged or betrothed to Mary. This is an important, important detail. She's with child, but they're still betrothed, which means they have not consummated their marriage yet. They are not truly man and wife. Joseph, then we're told, brings Mary. This is an interesting detail, a very interesting detail. If you know the story of the Jewish wedding ceremony, you know that when they're in this state of engagement, of betrothal, they would never be seen together. Once the betrothal, once the engagement takes place, they're separated, and the next time the bride and the groom see each other, it's on their wedding day, when the, when the groom comes to collect his bride. So the fact that they're not just hanging around together, but he's traveling with her, is a very extraordinary detail. In fact, if Joseph was engaged to Mary under normal circumstances... Uh, and had not consummated the marriage at this point, either he would have left her behind when he came down for the census, he would not have brought her with him, that's for sure, or if you want to take into account the fact that she's pregnant, if in real life she had become pregnant during the betrothal, not because of him, but because of some other source, 
he would either have abandoned her for good at that point, or at the very least, he might have saved her the embarrassment of being pregnant while being engaged and simply consummated the marriage early. You see the difference? He probably would have just gone into her, consummated the marriage, been husband and wife, and at least she's not walking around engaged and pregnant. So I want you to see the dilemma. Joseph is treating her as if she's married to save her, to some extent, some of the embarrassment of being left behind in a pregnant state. But he's not violating what the angel has told them, which is that she would be a virgin through the birth process. In other words, he's leaving her as an engaged, unconsummated marriage partner until the birth is complete, and yet acting in an outward way as if they are married. He's violating every rule the society might have for how to deal with this situation. And in fact, Mary's condition is, is such that she would be so despised and so scorned that it's likely that Joseph himself is sharing in that treatment at this point by how he has taken her under her, his wing. And in fact, it's easy to say, Joseph is looking like a fool at this point. To someone who does not understand where the baby truly arrived from, for somebody who does not know that it is God's child that she is carrying and sees it simply as another example of a loose woman who got herself pregnant, they see Joseph as the consummate fool. He's a fool for not just marrying her and getting it over with, and he's a fool in the first place for even having anything to do with her, much less cart her around, take her back to his family in this state. What a fool! In fact, I'd argue that he's probably the first fool for Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.9, Paul says this, For I think God has exhibited us apostles, us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. We toil working with our hands. When we are reviled, we bless. And when we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. That's what Paul said happened to the apostles for Christ's sake. I think Joseph may have been the very first man, you could say, became a fool in the world's eyes, but for Christ's sake. And that's our calling as well. Maybe not to the extent of an apostle, I pray, but when you feel reviled, when you feel in some sense put down by the world because of your faith, rejoice because you are becoming the same fool for Christ that Paul and the other apostles and Joseph himself enjoyed the opportunity to become. Because in those times you suffer, your reward, Christ said, will be great later. That he will see to it that he restores to you what was lost for his sake. Now, Joseph is returning to Bethlehem, as we said, because the census requires that he go to the home of his ancestry. I want you to consider something important here. Joseph, as a member of the tribe of Judah, had an ancestral home in Bethlehem. And I, I would argue he probably never lived there, but that's where his family, his tribe, came from. Remember, Bethlehem is called the city of David, because in Micah 5.2, we also learn that's where the Messiah is going to be born. Micah 5.2 says this, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. From the days of eternity, God had selected Bethlehem as the place from which He would bring the Messiah. So for all you 
God's sovereignty junkies out there, here's your question. Was God simply telling us what would happen? Or did God want the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem? And this is important because it cuts to the core of what it means to be God. Simply knowing the future or controlling the future. Well, consider the significance of why Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. He's the son of David and he's going to come to rule like his father, David. But he's going to be greater than David, we're told in Matthew 22:45. So David is a picture of the Messiah in how he ruled over a united Israel. But if David is the picture of the Messiah, then everything about David needs to be, in some sense, consistent with that picture, even his birthplace. And that is true, as we know, David was born in Bethlehem as well. So David's birthplace of Bethlehem is itself a picture of where Christ himself would be born. But we're told in Micah that his days to be, or his plan to be born from Bethlehem goes back from the days of eternity. God had always intended that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. And here we hear that David himself was born in Bethlehem and he was a picture of Christ. So it would seem that God had worked to make sure that even David would be born in Bethlehem so that the picture would be complete. God has to have control of even the circumstances surrounding David's birth and now the circumstances of this census so that there would be a census where there had never been one before in the time when Christ himself would be born, so that a man, Joseph, would actually have reason to travel to a city he'd never lived in his whole life, probably, so that when the birth came, it would fulfill the prophecy. God's not just telling you what would happen. God is showing you that he had controlled it even from the beginning so that it would happen, so that all these things could line up and the picture be complete. But here's the last question for the day, and maybe the most important one. If it was so important that Christ be born in Bethlehem, then why did he grow up in Nazareth? Why not have have Joseph's family live in Bethlehem? Why not have the family just be there? He grows up there. He's from Bethlehem. Why from Nazareth, of all places? Matthew 2.23, remember? It says he came, or you would remember this, I guess, but you remember the discussion we've had about Nazareth already. In Matthew 2.23, we're told he came and lived in a city called Nazareth. And then Matthew adds this detail. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Well, that's interesting. There's only one problem. There is no Old Testament scripture reference that says that phrase. Though it says here it was spoken through the prophets, there's no scripture given in the entire Bible that says those words, he shall be called a Nazarene. And so, what are we to take of that? What is Matthew saying? What does this prophecy refer to? Why did he have to be in Nazareth? Well, again, the language here is going to be key, as well as an understanding of the culture a little bit. The word Nazarene was given in that day to anyone who came from the general region of the city of Nazareth. It is not necessarily consistent with a Nazarite. Sometimes we get those two words confused. They're really different words altogether. It is not that he would be a Nazarite, because he doesn't fit the uh, requirements of a Nazarite vow given in number 6. Chief among those is you can't drink wine. We know Christ did. He's not a Nazarite. But over the centuries, that region became associated with people who were despised and lowly. One of the worst things you could call somebody was a Nazarene in that day. Because of the location, because of the association that had grown over time with people who lived there. And so, if you were a Nazarene, you were shunned. You were shunned in much the same way that John the Baptist was shunned for his strange behavior and lifestyle. And they were lowly. And I think that's the point Matthew is making. When he says the prophet said he shall be a Nazarene, he is referring to the endless number of prophecies that said 
Christ would be despised, that Christ would be considered lowly, that there'd be nothing good about him. Remember, even as Matthew records, people said, can anything good, or I think it's John actually, in the early part of John's Gospel, can anything good come from Nazareth? That was the perception people had of that region. Psalms 22.1 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You remember those words? It goes on to say this, Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. Now this is talking about Christ. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cry out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm, not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. That's prophecy of Christ. Isaiah 49 says this, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise, princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. But Christ is the despised one, the one abhorred by the nations. In other words, Christ was despised for our sake and in that the prophets have been testifying all along that he would be a Nazarene that he would come from a region that would make him despised. I find it interesting that, yes, he was despised, and we can see reasons in the Gospel why his life created difficulty, created anger in the Pharisees, for example. But it goes deeper than that. God needed his son to be despised. God needed his son to be put on the cross. God needed his son to be put to death. And even from the place of his upbringing, God has set forth things so that his son would be despised. We talk about the love of a God who could put his own son to death and we try to identify for for our own sake. If I knew that I could save the world by putting my own son to death, would I still do it? Would I still find a way to do that? Well, God had so much the purpose to do that, he started even before the death. If it meant I had to take your son and put him in the worst circumstances in this world so that he would grow up hated and despised, prejudiced against. It doesn't just happen on the day he dies, but on every day of his life, would you take your son and make him the object of derision that God our Father did with his son? So that on the day appointed for his death, there'd be no doubt that all the dots would be lined up to ensure that that death would take place. It's the cruelest hoax you could play on somebody when you think about it, but necessary if his love was to reign in the hearts of men. I mean, make no mistake, there is a day that Christ comes to win in glory and to rule, but it had to be preceded by a cruel death, and that death, for our sake, had to come at the hands of people that hated Him. And God ensured that that hate would be there. He will be our King for all those who are deserving of death, but rather receive life on His, on his work. Meanwhile, we remember His life in its first coming as one in which He was hated. And like him, we may find ourselves there too. We'll finish with that. Next week we'll pick up where we left off in chapter 2. But our message, as I hope it came through today for us in gaining a greater appreciation of Christ and of his ministry, is that he was despised, not just in the last day, but on all days. That though he had close friends, the world at large knew him as a Nazarene. We'll go into prayer and Daniel, I'll turn it to you as you play after the prayer. We'll pray again for God's sovereignty in the work of this church as well in the lives of each person here that we might 
find joy in being despised for his sake. We might be fools like Joseph. And in fact, though it's counter to our desires, I'm sure, I pray that God would give us opportunity to be a fool, to be lowly, to be a a living example of what he did when he came. Go with me to the Father as we pray and end our service for the day. Father, I give you so much thanks again for the gift of your word and of its power, Father, to reveal your Son to us in so many details. Father, as each man here who has a son reflects on what it would be to hand him over, to be despised, to be hated, to be tortured, and then killed, who could do that, Father? I would love to think, Lord, that I could be so loving as you as to do that for the sake of all men on earth. But, Father, in the moment when the decision came, I question whether I could do that. Father, how much greater are you that not only could you do that, but you could do that with a son who was perfect, a son who was as much you as you are yourself and was with you in eternity. And yet, Father, the son himself went willingly, gave himself without opening his mouth, like a lamb led to the slaughter. Father, we pray as we go through the Gospels, the Gospel of John and Matthew and Mark, and especially, Father, as we study the Gospel of Luke, that the four men who you entrusted to record the story of your Son could illuminate for us, Lord, how in this day and in our walk we could illuminate him as well, that we might be fools for him, we're called upon, that we would not seek, Father, to avoid opportunity to be despised for His sake, but, Father, embrace those opportunities knowing that in that work, Father, Your will is being done. That our, uh, us being an object of scorn, Father, is another example of what Your Son lived through in this earth. and Therefore, Father, we have another opportunity to reflect His glory. Father, for this small gathering as well, I pray. We've been faithful, Lord each in his own way, according to the faith given, to be here, to be a participant, to be, Father, one who can provide the gifts you've given as well as to benefit from the gifts of others. We've been faithful, Father, in your word as best we can by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that as we continue, you would continue. That as we continue, Father, in our limited opportunity and ability to obey, you would continue ever so much more in your unlimited ability to provide and guide and teach. And that in the days and weeks to come, Father, there would be no end for this opportunity, but it would continue, Father, as long as you see fit. And that as we've studied, Lord, we might walk out of this building each week with opportunity, Lord, to teach others about you, to live this life that you've given us, and, Father, to give you glory in all we do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.